This recording is a production of the Conservative Anabaptist Education Committee. This presentation was recorded at Conservative Anabaptist School Board Institute 2019, held in Montgomery, Indiana, on March 1 and 2. So our topic here is why teach literature. There's a handout here. Uh, Linford, you might want to give that to the ushers, and you can follow along there a bit. Why teach literature? When we think of literature, we probably think of books and writing. But the people who wrote the books and writing first did what is suggested by the picture on the right. They had eyes that saw and understood. The proverb writer, I think it was, said, I walked by the, the place where the hedge was overgrown and the weeds were coming up. This is my words. And he said, and he looked. And he saw, and he saw, and he took instruction. And then he said something like this, a little more sleep, a little more slumber, a little folding of the hands to sleep, and so shall thy poverty come as one that traveleth. And so he looked at the overgrown, weed-strewn place, and he took instruction from it. And so the writer is one who has eyes that see what's in front of his face. Do you recognize fellowship when it's happening around you? Do, do you know it for what it is? Do you, have you looked at life and recognized sorrow? Have you looked at life and recognized happiness? And then can you put that into words in a way that can be shared with others? My short answer to the question, why teach literature is a one word answer, and it is wisdom for wisdom. We need wisdom today. You can't take wisdom in a tablet. You can't give it in a pill. You can't give it to somebody by giving a statement for him to recite or by teaching him a list of facts. How, where is wisdom found? We know that the fear of the Lord is the beginning. And then once we get the beginning down, there's a lot of growth to take place, a lot of building on top of that uh, wisdom. And so let's look at a, a definition of wisdom here, is the ability to understand the circumstances and discern the best course of action. We need some Understanding, do we understand uh, the circumstances or the things that stand around us, the situation in which we are in? Do we understand that? Understand the questions, the problems, the potentialities, the difficulties, do we understand? And then are we able to discern the best course of action? That's a working definition of wisdom. And then a few, uh, a few reminders here. Excuse me, I want to try something here. Uh, not all wisdom, I would say, is created equal. Uh, before I read that, looking at the handout, how much better is it to get wisdom than gold and to get understanding rather than to be then chosen silver and wisdom 
is the principal thing, therefore get wisdom. And with all that getting, get understanding. Well, we, this is important and we know that. How do we go about doing this? Well, back to uh, my point here, not all wisdom is created equal. There is such a thing as worldly wisdom. Uh, there is a way, the scriptures tell us, that seems right. It seems right. People look at the, at the circumstances, they discern, and they proceed based on what seems right. And so uh, on your handout, I have some characteristics of this worldly wisdom is that it's based on a natural desire. That is an inborn desire for understanding and achievement and success. We want to have a successful life. And it pretty much depends upon our ability to reason and think and learn and we accumulate knowledge and experience and then we use that for success and success, the definition of success, the worldly wisdom would be whatever the seeker says success is. He gets to define it himself. And so that leads up to the scripture. There's a way that seems right, oftentimes, but the end thereof are the ways of death. So many people who do seek wisdom end up seeking and finding ways that result in death. As opposed to godly wisdom, a couple verses to think about as I talk about this are that uh, there's a way, yes, there's a way that seems right to man. The end thereof are the ways of death is worldly wisdom. But with godly wisdom, a man's wisdom makes his face to shine. And also, the path of life leads upward for the wise. The wise is led upward. Godly wisdom is you're motivated by a healthy fear of the Lord that removes you, moves you then to responsible action. And we do not depend upon human reason. However, we do use our God-given reason and our abilities to think, coupled with a dependence upon his spirit to guide us into truth, and I would say, as children also, coupled with a, a um, respect and an openness to be taught by those who are teaching you. And the goal is both a godly walk in this life and in the hereafter. And so we have that other aspect. And I would like to point out that the same experience, you can have two students can read the same material or have the same experience in reading and have different results from that. Depending upon the seeking it depends quite a bit on the seeker as to what he gets from this. You can't assume that just because somebody reads something or studies something or hears something that he is going to gain godly wisdom uh, from that. That's why it, is, it does make a big difference who the teacher is, who the person is who guides this person to his thinking. So the same experience can provide an opportunity to grow in either worldly or in godly wisdom. And I have just a list of a few forms that wisdom may take here. 
we may gain insight, see into, sing, into things, I, I understand, or we may be warned of the consequences of certain kinds of thinking, certain kinds of behavior, certain kinds of attitudes. We may be encouraged to, when the going gets tough, the tough get going, for example. We may be inspired, enlightened, or maybe there's an example, both good examples for us to emulate and poor examples for us to avoid. And I'd like to make a comment here about critical thinking. There's a lot of talk about critical thinking today, and it has its, it has its rule. But I would like to caution us that critical thinking can become idolatry, the same as any other thing that we focus on uh, solely. When we use critical thinking, we do, in a sense, hold things at arm's length, and we, we look at them, and we evaluate them. What is this? Where does it come from? Uh, what's it trying to accomplish? And we're, we're care very, very careful before we adopt it. Now, the risk is that it can, put, it can put whatever we study beneath us, putting our mind into the driver's seat. And so there, it is important to not be gullible, but as we study literature, we are looking at it uh, when we say critically, the word here as it's used does not mean that you're finding fault. It means you're looking at the elements of it and you're able to point out what is uh, done well, what's not done well. You're able to identify the elements, its purposes, and so forth. Now, looking at uh, teaching literature, I'd like to walk through these sentences with you. Why teach literature? Teaching literature involves helping the students to engage, when I say engage here, it's to interact with a literary work in a way that influences how they live their lives from that day forward. And I'm not saying that tongue in cheek, I actually mean that. When you read something, why you, and you read it, if it's worthwhile reading, you read it, and it influences you in some way your attitudes, your thinking, your understanding in some way. Now, we may not remember having read it, and that doesn't matter. I don't remember every meal I've eaten. I can't tell you what I had for lunch on July 13th, 1987. But what I ate that day influenced my life. And just because we can't name all the stories we've read, all the things we've read, and say, I read this then, therefore I think this now. No, we don't have to do that. But as we read things and engage, truly engage things, they do influence us. They influence our thinking, our attitudes, and this could go either way. It could be in a good way, or if we, uh, if we don't, do not really engage it, we may develop a ho-hum attitude, not only towards what we read, but towards life. Good literature throbs with the pulse of the human heart in its interaction with God's world. I think of reading literary pieces a bit like 
seeing, a, being able to see the heart beating, if you could actually see transparently, see into someone's chest and see the heart pulsing and the valves opening and closing and the blood moving, that, that would be kind of scary, wouldn't it? Uh, you're not even sure you quite would want to look at that. It's, it's kind of breathtaking to actually see the heart at work. Well, when we read literary pieces, we're seeing people interacting with the experiences of everyday life. And there's a reason why I'm using this one illustration a few times. It has to do with the village blacksmith. And the point here is that, uh, I'll show you a bigger picture later, but uh, we have a blacksmith at work in, in everyday life, in daily life. And we have children coming home from school. And this is the routines of life. And when we think about the specialness of life, it's often the routines that we think about, that we, we celebrate. Uh, reading on, people who truly read literature grow a little, grow a little with each piece they read. They may be enlightened, inspired, encouraged, or warned. They may gain knowledge, insight, or motivation. And reading literature helps to form both the mind and the heart. Now, I would say actually form and inform. When you inform, why you, you give material with which to build, but you also form the mind and the heart. And reading well-written literature also provides models that help develop powers of expression. This is a valuable but uh, kind of a side value of well-written literary pieces is that it actually shows you a pattern of thinking and also a pattern of using words that, uh, that helps you. Now, I might just mention here the difference between teaching reading and teaching literature. When, you, when we think of reading, we teach uh, reading skills. We teach children how to, how to understand words, how to read words, how to read with expression, also how to read with comprehension. Those are skills. When we teach, and, and sometimes the two go together, but when we teach literature, we're going for the content. And along the way, in, this, in the very same class, you might be working at developing expression and developing comprehension, but you're actually also very interested in the actual substance of this work. And it's in this context that you can develop the ability to think, uh, the critical thinking skills that are actually important, and you can bring together the teacher and the student and the work, kind of a three-way connection as you interact with, with the piece, with the students, and with the teacher. And so quality literature has both themes of substance along with excellence of form and expression. And so the, the elements in this literary work have substance. They're worthwhile thinking about, worthwhile pondering. It's the, it's the material with, with which we build our understanding of the world around us, and then also good literary work has good form and it's done well. 
However, uh, pursuing, I, I, I'll give two cautions here from your handout, pursuing timeless and universal themes does not assure that the work is well worth, uh, that it's worth reading. There are students see straight through some things. Some uh, selections are so thin that the reader can tell you before they start, they can tell you that they're going to say this and this and this, and then it's going to say that and that and that, and that's what we're supposed to think. It's you know, almost formulaic, and they almost approach it cynically. You know, it's, uh, Dad's going to go away, and he's going to tell the boys to behave, and the boys are going to do something they shouldn't do, and then when Dad gets home, why, the boys are going to be uh, called on the carpet, and it's just a question of what it is this time. Uh, that kind of, of writing uh, deals with real things of life, but it does not, it's not uh, literary. And so sometimes actually telling the reader what to think or how to think actually sometimes undermines the purpose. But effective stories show truth in action. And then secondly, it's also, so there are problems either way here. You need both substance, but you need it well written. But just because something is well written doesn't mean it has substance. If you have something with excellent form and expression, but don't have substance, then it becomes this sounding brass that uh, Paul talks about. And at the bottom of your handout, I have a list of common themes. What do we mean by themes? Well, in any given piece, whether it's a biography, uh, whether it's uh, a historical story set in a, in a historical setting, whether it's uh, a storybook, short stories, poem, or whatever, uh, deals with one or more of these themes, such as ambition, coming of age, growing up, the issues of growing up and, and dealing with, uh, with life. I won't read them all off to you. What I'd like to do now is look at a couple pieces uh, with you uh, to illustrate. So we'll take, be to begin with here, something from The Village Blacksmith by Longfellow. There's also a painting. And I'm not going to take time to read the whole thing to you. I'll just look at two stanzas here. And so we read in the village blacksmith, his hair is crisp and black and long, his face is like the tan, his brow is wet with honest sweat. He earns whatever he can and looks the whole world in the face, for he owes not any man. It's a rich privilege to be able to discuss with students the content here. Here's where you come together and you can see what's involved here. He, his brow is, sweat with, uh, is wet with honest sweat. Is there such a thing as dishonest sweat? And is that, uh, what is honest sweat? Do your, does your mother have honest sweat when you get home and she's preparing supper? And that's one thing to get at in there. And he looks the whole world in the face, for he owes not any man. 
What does it mean to look, to, uh, to look someone in the face, to be able to look at someone in the face? What are some reasons why you might not be able to look someone in the face? Did you ever feel like, and I wish we had time here to uh, make a class out of this, let's find that. Uh, I'll just ask, one of you, ask you, for what reason might you not be able to look someone in the face? What might be a reason why your eyes might go down? Does somebody want to tell us? Gil. Gil. Mm-hmm. Shame. Mm-hmm. Right. So there you see this. This uh, when you discuss literary pieces, it gives you opportunity to deal with these things of substance that make life what it is, and also it builds tremendous opportunities for discussion and to develop the skills and students to actually talk out loud about what they're thinking and to hear each other talk and to learn from each other. One other stanza. Toiling, this is the last one. Toiling, rejoicing, sorrowing. Onward through life he goes. Each morning sees some task begun. Each evening sees it close. Something attempted, something done has earned a night's repose. And there are three or four things you can get your teeth into, at least in this stanza, to think about. Twirling, rejoicing, sorrowing. If you had to pick three words, what three words would you pick to describe life? And that middle one there is a powerful one. These lines you can take with you to the bank and you can use them for the rest of your life. Think about it in the evening when you put your head in the pillow, something attempted, something done. Have you done that today? Have you attempted something? Have you done something? Has earned its night's repose. One example, and other, other stanzas, who's familiar with the village blacksmith? Uh, other stanzas have their own substance you could look at. Here's a little poem looking for something for younger children. Who has seen the wind? Neither I nor you. But when the leaves hang trembling, the wind is passing through. Who has seen the wind? Neither you nor I. But when the trees bow down their heads, the wind is passing by. Can we see the wind? Is there, is, is there such a thing as a wind? How do you know there's a wind? You know, children, little children like to ask those why questions, you know? And once they get up into school age, you can turn that around and ask them some, some why questions. One of the things that you can discuss here is things that you can't see. How do we know that there is a wind? Well, the poet tells us we see the trees responding. And that can lead into, and you need to know your group, need to know the age, but that can lead into other things that you can't see, but that are as real or maybe more real than the wind. Whether it's, say, smell, or whether it's things abstract, things like happiness or sorrow, or joy. 
or jealousy. You can't see any of them, can you? You can't see them, but when they pass by, there is a result. And so you could ask them, instead of the leaves hanging trembling, how do we know if there's happiness in the room? Or if there's uh, laziness, what are some of the symptoms of this? Is this actually something that there isn't? And then, of course, this isn't a, a session about writing, but if you were going to write, you could uh, uh, pick on other things and have them parody this as to who has seen laziness or who has seen happiness and see what they could come up with. Let's, I'm going to spend a bit of time here sharing some thoughts from the big wave. The big wave is a, a long story, a really little short book by Pearl Buck. It's a story of a big wave, a tsunami that struck an island in the Pacific. I think she wrote the story based on experiences that did happen. The story itself, as far as I know, is, uh, is fiction, but it's a very real experience. And what has happened is that a, a tsunami came in and completely destroyed a fishing village that was on the, on the beach. All the houses, it came in, and when it went out, the houses and all the people that were there are gone. And this one boy who's about nine or 10 years old and his, uh, Gia, his name was, his whole family was gone. But he, that particular day, was up on higher ground with a, a family, a farm family, that, uh, with a friend of his, whose name was Kino, and when he was up there when the, when the wave came. So the wave has come and taken everything away, and uh, this boy, they saw it happen, and this uh, surviving son is asleep at the moment. And the father and his son, who is about this boy's age, are talking. And then there's a, also a mother and a younger sister of this boy. Her name is Setsu. So I'll break right in here and read a bit. So they waited for Gia to awake. I don't think Gia can ever be happy again, Kino said sorrowfully. Yes, he will be happy someday, his father said, for life is always stronger than death. Gia will feel when he wakes that he can never be happy again. He will cry and cry, and we must let him cry. But he cannot always cry. After a few days, he will stop crying all the time. He will cry only part of the time. He will sit and sit, sit sad and quiet. We must allow him to be sad, and we must not make him speak. But we will do our work and live as always we do. Then one day he will be hungry and he will eat something that our mother cooks, something special, and he will begin to feel better. He will not cry anymore in the daytime, but only at night. We must let him cry at night. But all the time, his body will be renewing itself. His blood will be flowing in his veins, his bones growing, 
his mind beginning to think again, will make him live. He cannot forget his mother and his father and his brother, Kino exclaimed. No, he cannot forget, and he should not forget them, Kino's father said. Just as he lived with them alive, he will live with them dead. Someday he will accept their death as part of his life. He will weep no more. He will carry them in his memory and his thoughts. His flesh and blood are part of them. So long as he is alive, they too will live in him. The big wave came, but it went away. The sun shines again, birds sing, and earth flowers. Look out over the sea now. Kino looked out the open door, and he saw the ocean sparkling and smooth. The sky was blue again. A few clouds on the horizon were the only sign of what had passed except for the empty beach. How cruel it seems for the sky to be so clear and the ocean so calm, Kino said. But his father shook his head. No. It is wonderful that after the storm, the ocean grows calm and the sky is blue once more. It was not the ocean or the sky that made the evil storm. Who made it? Kino asked. He let tears roll down his cheeks because there was so much he could not understand. But only his father saw them, and his father understood. Ah, no one knows who makes evil storms, his father replied. We only know that they come. When they come, we must live through them as bravely as we can, and after they are gone, we must feel again how wonderful is life. Every day of life was more valuable now than it was before the storm. But Gia's father, his mother, and his brother, and all the other good fisher folk who were lost, Kina whispered, he could not forget the dead. Now we must think of Gia, his father reminded him. He will open his eyes at any minute, and we must be there, you to be his brother, and I to be his father. Call your mother, too and little Setsu. Now they heard something. Gia's eyes were still closed, but he was sobbing in his sleep. Kino ran to fetch his mother and Setsu, and they gathered about his bed, kneeling on the floor so as to be near Gia when he opened his eyes. In a few minutes, while they all watched, Gia's eyelids fluttered on, on his pale cheeks, and then he opened his eyes. He did not know where he was. He looked from one face to the other, as though they were strangers. Then he looked up into the beams of the ceiling and around the white walls of the room. He looked at the blue flowered quilt that covered him. None of them said anything. They continued to kneel about him waiting, but Setsu could not keep quiet. She clapped her hands and laughed. Oh, Gia has come back, she cried. Gia, did you have a good dream? The sound of her voice made him fully awake. My father, my mother, he whispered. Kino's mother took his hand. I will be your mother now, dear Gia, she said. I will be your father, Kino's father said. I am your brother now, Gia, Kino faltered. Oh, Gia, we'll live with us, Setsu said joyously. 
Then Gia understood. He got up from the bed, walked to the door that stood open to the sky and the sea. He looked down the hillside to the beach where the fishing village had stood. There was only beach and all that remained of the 20 and more houses were a few foundation posts and some big stones. The gentle little waves of the ocean were playing, caref caref were playing playfully carrying the light timber that had made the houses and throwing it on the sands and snatching it away again. The family had followed Gia and now they stood about him. Kino did not know what to say for his heart ached for his friend brother. Kino's mother was wiping her eyes and even little Sets who looked sad. She took Gia's hand and stroked it. Gia, I will give you my pet duck, she said. But Gia could not speak. He kept looking at the ocean. Gia, your rice is growing, rice is growing cold, Kino's father said. We ought to eat something, Kino's mother said. I have fine chicken for dinner. I'm hungry, Setsu cried. Come, my son, Gia's father said. Gia sat with the others. He was awake. He could hear the voices of Kino's family, and he knew that Kino sat beside him. But inside, he still felt asleep. He was very tired, so tired he didn't want to speak. He knew that he would never see his father and mother anymore, or his brother, or his neighbors and friends of the village. He tried not to think about them or to imagine their quiet bodies floating under the swelling waves. And then he sat there with his food untouched and they asked if he wanted to go outside and he said, no, I want to go to sleep again. Kino's father understood. Sleep is good for you, he said. And he led Gia to his bed. And when Gia had laid himself down, he covered him with a quilt and shut the sliding panels. Gia is not yet ready to live, said Kino. We must wait. I'll stop there. You can find the story and finish it yourself. There is a process involved here. It's a slow process. And eventually, he starts to cry. And Father said, this is a good sign. Tears comfort the heart. He must cry. And time goes on. And I'll let you find out for yourself how the story ends. But as we think of this, this what I've read here is packed. It's, it's loaded with opportunity to consider some of the realities of life. And children can discuss this. They can find significance and meaning here. And the, uh, some years ago, we, we read this uh, excerpt from this in a literature book, and I had my class, this is grade seven and eight, list truths, maxims that we could learn from this particular selection. And I'll just share, I think, a 12 of them here with you. These are things that seventh and eighth graders came up with. One of them was, what we depend upon for our living can kill us. That is, these fishermen lived on the, at the edge of the ocean, and there's a risk every day of dying at work. And uh, this next one is a fascinating one. This comes out in another place in the story. 
But most, most children think that other children have a better life than what they have. Sitting up at night will not keep a storm away. Tears can comfort the heart. <coughs> when there's been a catastrophe, you cannot get awake and continue to live without a will. It takes a will to go onward. These are not my words. These are words the students came up with. You can never truly be happy until you can bear to think about the past, about the sad things of the past. And you cannot make a genuine choice if you are already partly decided. I like that one. Rich people sometimes help the poor to benefit themselves rather than the poor. That comes out in another part of the story. We sometimes do not realize that we are happy. Did you ever, were you ever happy and didn't know it? And what bothers one person may be admired by another. This came out later in the story. As they grew up, eventually, eventually, uh, at the end of later in the book, uh, Gia married this Setsu who was uh, a bit younger. And when he got older and expressed interest in her, her brother could not imagine how anybody could be interested in this flighty uh, thing of his sister. And one of the, I think the parents said, well, what bothers you he might actually like? And that was uh, another insight. And so, my, as you can see in this, in this list from reading this selection, there are things here, you might come across them in this piece, but you might come across them again in another story in another way. This is a, a sad story. And by the way, I need to mention with this story, these people are not uh, overtly anyway, they are not Christians. And it's interesting, this is another insight we can get. How do people who do not have a hope of Christ, how do they face these difficulties? What, what can we see in the way this is written of what kind of faith these people had? Here's another common selection. I'll just call attention to a few more pieces here by John Donne. No man is an island entire of itself. Every man is a piece of the continent, a part of the main. If a cloud be washed away by the sea, Europe is the less, as well as if a whole promontory were, as well as any manner of thy friends or of thine own were. Any man's death diminishes me, because I'm involved in mankind, and therefore never send to know for whom the bell tolls, it tolls for thee. Two things I remember about this is the point that no man is an island. We need each other. And when one suffers, the scripture would word it like this, when one suffers, we all suffer. And when you hear a bell tolling, it's really, there's a sense, yes, it's tolling, it's referring to the bell tolling for a funeral, uh, but there's a sense in which it's a commentary on all of mankind. Everyone must die. Here's a short little piece from Hiawatha's Wooing by Longfellow. As unto the bow the cord is, so unto the man is the woman. Though she bends him, she obeys him. 
Though she draws him, yet she follows, useless each without the other. Fascinating thing to ponder, especially with high school students. You stop and think about what that really says. Useless each without the other. And the one, the one bends, but obeys, and draws, and yet she follows. Can you read that, and does it describe something of significance about how life works? Does it put words to how things really work? It's not complete, but there's something there of significance. Another short poem. Still as of old, men by themselves are priced. For 30 pieces, Judas sold himself, not Christ. He was really showing something about himself by what he, which leads you to dis, the whole discussion of what you will pay for things and why one person would pay more for something than somebody else and what it shows about appetite. I'll finish here with a few samples. Another kind of literature is simply short, pithy sayings about everyday life. Some anthologies include some sayings from Will Rogers like this. Uh, even if you're on the right track, you'll get run over if you just sit there and live in such a way that you would not be ashamed to sell your parrot to the town gossip. And everybody's ignorant, only on different subjects. Now, see, you heard yourself laughing a little there, but you know, when, when you laugh like that, it's often because it's, a, it's that little insight yeah, that's, what, that's actually the way life is. And as you get your students to interact with that, then you can invite them to do likewise. So I'll share some from some of my students here. Everyone sleeps in church. Some just stop after they turn five. <laughs> Home is a great place to be, but you can't stay there forever. Uh, referring to growing up. It's particularly true maybe in today's world. What someone else has is better until you're in their shoes. I, I, really, I really value having students write things like this. These are words from students. It's easier to, be, to remember to study than to study to remember. And gratitude is a treasure that many lack but are unable to steal it from another. Why teach literature? It's for wisdom, for insight. And use the opportunity. If you don't have time to have a teacher teach all the literature, at least if you have to have a hybrid setting in your school, at least have some. At least get an adult to interact with the children in some of these pieces that you read. And don't dissect them to death. Don't just analyze them and end up with a pile of pieces and talk about the climax and, and so on. But get to the heart, to the substance of what's in this piece. And a well-written piece will, there's something, it goes deep and becomes part of you. Even if you don't accept it in the day that you hear it or read it, it has that way of, of being in there 
and the Lord is able to bring back those, those truth, those insights in later life and give you guidance. God bless you. This recording and many others are available through Christian Learning Resource, the campus bookstore at Faith Builders. Order online at www.christianlearning.org or call 877-222-4769.